It is Dostasapod, and folks, we have so much to cover today, it uh, it doesn't seem like it's all going to fit, but we're going to cram it in, I promise. Uh, first up, we're going to do a very big sale starting this Tuesday. This is going to be the debut of the Bugwing project from most toys, and it's going to show off our first character from this expanded universe of the MoFo's world. Uh, very excited about that, but with Bugwing arriving, I am seriously uh, running into a problem with space. I now have packages and boxes of products stacked to the ceiling. I have no room at all, so I got to make a lot of room, and that means that the sale is not going to be just big in terms of launching a brand new product that everybody's going to want, but it's going to be big also because I'm going to put together some... Uh, bundles and some older product and things like that to hopefully alleviate the uh, you know the serious real estate issue I'm having at the moment. So uh, we have that plus we have um, what remains of the October stock for uh, sorry September stock for action figure of the Millennia Club. This is the Hell Diver, the pearlescent uh, white diver designed by Sean Gordon. Those uh, remaining will be available to patrons right away, and then uh, they might make a debut in the store during the public sale if there are any left thereafter. Uh, There is no Lady Hades. Um, She may take a new form and appear sometime next year or sometime later down the road, but um, I made her to order based on the Patreon numbers, so she will not be getting a sort of second chance option for people. Uh, in addition, I have the beautiful hot ice rat orange armor uh, that goes with Classic Knights. I'm going to make those remainers available, likely in a bundle that will include blue limbs as well. Um, I got a bunch of stuff. I'm really trying to move as much as I can. We have even more boxes on the way as well, and um, it's crunch time. So. With those disclaimers out of the way, I think we can hop into some questions and answers and a little bit of other upcoming news items. With October, we have a lot of new new, uh, product launching. We have a lot of interesting events. We, of course, have our Zed Star 7 Halloween show on the 30th, Sunday of October. Uh, This is a costume party slash music concert. It's going to be a lot of fun. I will be giving away the Halloween Pokemon pack card sets to anyone that uh, arrives in concert, uh, sorry, in costume to the concert. So uh, be sure to put that on your calendar and join us if you are in the tri-state area. I also have a couple uh, print material pre-orders that are in production right now. I picked up today the Normal Combat 2 zines, and they're quite excellent. Now, I made a last-minute strategic decision. Um, I sort of showed the preview image of the zine as having a cardboard, uh, I wouldn't say cardboard, but heavier cardstock cover, and then black and white interior, as was the case with the first Normal Combat zine. Um, I actually last minute decided not to have the thicker cardstock cover, but instead 
print the zine in color, so all the images and graphics are printed in color instead of black and white. So hopefully that's a uh, respectable trade-off. I think it makes it uh, much more dynamic and uh, better product. So um, just don't be shocked when the zine arrives looking like that. We got some card slicers coming out this month as well. The Halloween Boss Encounter 4-pack. Um, I think I'm almost sold out of that. Uh, that's going to be a very small product run. Patrons already came and uh, pre-ordered, and there's but a handful left, so those should be gone sometime soon. Also worth noting, both the boss card and the Rex and Love card that comes with the normal combat zine are going to be foil, which uh, was not originally advertised, but a nice little bonus that I decided, again, at the last minute, always adding value for you folks. So as you can see, there's a lot going on. We have... Our Halloween show, we have the debut of the Bugwing project, we have uh, new card slicer boss encounter cards coming out, and also as I've shared on the Patreon, I am hard at work on the Jagged Age 18 card set, which will be um, the next big expansion set after, of course, Harbor Noir and the Mofos 18 card set, which um, should be to us before the end of the year. Um, no surprise, the printer is uh, very backed up and delayed at the moment. Also coming out soon, I make my Hollywood debut in a Patreon ambassador video that will be circulating in short time. I'll share it with you guys when it's live. Uh, they came up to my house and filmed me, and we talked about the supply chain and how that affects what I do. And uh, I saw a rough cut of the video. It's really quite excellent, and I'm looking forward to getting that out to everybody. Uh, thank you to the folks at Patreon for wanting to pick my brain. Flattered to be involved. It's a, it's a really excellent short piece, and uh, I think people are going to dig it. Okay, but all that, you know, that's just, uh, that's old news, really. we got to get to the questions here. I want to start with our question of the week. Entering the Tomimoto zone with our good friend Lance Tomimoto, I'm getting married Saturday. What makes a good wedding? What was the most fun wedding you attended and why? Everyone have a great one. Well, Lance, uh, on behalf of all the Squires of the Slice, big time congratulations to you. We're all very happy for you. I would say the single most key, important ingredient to a good wedding is food. And now the food doesn't even have to be particularly good, but you have to feed the people promptly. You have to have multiple courses. And um, you have to realize, like, a lot of people are traveling a very long way. They have to sit through a ceremony. Uh, I think that the key to having a great wedding, from my experience, the ones I've been to, is just constantly giving food and drink to people all the time. I think that's truly what separates an amateur hour from the professionals. So uh, that would be my advice to you. I don't know if I know Saturday is very close. I don't know if you have time to recalibrate around this concept, but I would say that's the single most important thing to think about. Uh, obviously, like music and dancing, that stuff's important, but, you know, truth be told, people are going to dance even if the DJ's not very good and songs aren't great. Um, you know, that's what we're put on earth to do, is to get out on the dance floor. But in order to do that, we need nutrients. We need things to fuel our dance frenzy, and that's where the hors d'oeuvres come in. So if you have time to, to bear that in mind, um, you know, feel free to incorporate it. Moving along, Gordon McKinnon Hall 
What do you think about alternate head slash face plates to give toys different expressions? Would you ever consider doing something like that? Uh, I definitely have. I would say that my one criticism of this process is that the majority of toys that have sort of face plates that plug in so you can change a shocked expression to a neutral expression, etc., etc., is that they don't work that well. A, a few of them do. You know, higher-end stuff like Hot Toys, they figured out how to do that pretty well. Um, but for smaller scales, typically these face plates slide off or fall during play or posing. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those features that's easier to get wrong than it is to get right. It's probably also worth noting, uh, for the same cost of that feature, you can probably just sculpt an entirely different alternate head at least at the scale that I work at. So, you know, with any of these sort of gimmicks, um, it has to be something that's gonna entice more business that you normally wouldn't get because it does take more work to enact anything like that, any sort of gimmick or feature. Uh, this is a feature that I don't think necessarily adds value or brings new customers or things like that. And in my experience, I've seen far too many figures that just get that feature completely wrong. So uh, I think for me, the idea of buying a figure and getting multiple heads that you can just pop on and off is probably a more elegant and simplistic solution. Next question from Brett. With a figure line like Final Faction garnering a cult following, uh, do you foresee other entities doing a budget toy line of that volume? Or is it a diamond in the rough for today's market? I know you talked about this line a lot on here, so feel free to skip if you're tired of discussing. The Magic 125 can reward everyone with. Thank you. No, I actually, I think this is a trend and more and more toy lines are going to be heading in this direction and really have been for many years. Um, you know, I think of Hasbro acquiring the Marvel license and almost overnight introducing all these budget price points that did not exist previously. You know, we had sort of Marvel Legends, they experimented with smaller scales, they might have, you know, pull back and go ATV with a Spider-Man figure on it, but largely uh, not catering to these budget propositions in the toy aisle. Uh, Hasbro quickly introduced all these lower price points, less paint apps, less articulation. You know, I think the prevalence of these 12 inch figures that are typically between 10 and $20. Um, you know, you see them by Spin Master, you see them for Fortnite, you see them for Marvel, certainly. Uh, this is all the trend of toy collecting. It's, it's all going to um, be reduced a, a sort of stratification, if you will. We're gonna have high-end stuff that's gonna become more and more expensive. So your Black Series, your Marvel Legends, and then you're going to have cheaper and cheaper merchandise with retailers like Five Below and Dollar Family uh, taking more and more of the market share. The, the middle will not hold in our current reality, and that applies not just to retailers, but um, also, you know, our politics, almost everything. The middle will not hold. We're gonna see more and more mid-tier SKUs sort of dissipating and uh, becoming less and less frequent, and we're gonna see this, you know, like I said, collector items, price is going to go up and more and more dollar store merchandise is going to take the space uh, in these aisles. 
Next up from Jerry Bow. Assuming the lost packages are drifting through the vector for eternity, would you have the figures that went missing rerun, or are we forever tormented by what might have been? Uh, so Jerry is, of course, referencing the first lost shipment I've ever had. Uh, I've had things delayed for weeks and months at a time, but typically they show up eventually. Uh, here, uh, seven years into doing this, FedEx has completely lost a package and delivered several packages uh, nearly torn open. So um, here's how that sort of impacts things. One, obviously the creation of Lady Hades and her limited availability was impacted by this lost shipment, not because her components were lost, but because uh, it had a sort of ripple effect. I was going to have portions of Lady Hades just be store items. They quickly needed to be uh, sort of sequestered and reused for the club figure, and other things are sort of getting shifted around. Now, the items in question that are missing are not missing in their entirety, meaning this is a certain style of figure or accessories that I have some of, but I do not have the entire intended amount. So likely, there's going to be a figure in the near future that goes up for sale, and uh, I probably will not be able to offer it to patrons ahead of time. And this kind of goes against how I like to conduct business, but this is pretty extreme circumstance. So there will be a good old-fashioned first-come, first-serve offer for this figure on the public store uh, at some point in the future. I, I thought maybe utilizing this half-order of a figure uh, as a show figure might make the most sense, because then I can sort of bring it to the show, anyone who's attending can get one, and then... I can make it available to patrons afterwards, and if anything is left beyond that, I can make it a public figure. Um, again, not ideal because I like to put the patrons first, but uh, I think I, I consider my patrons to be reasonable people. They understand. Um, so hopefully that will be you know a good way to do it. I, I always have the option of sort of doing a lucky draw or a raffle or things like that as well. So that may come to pass. Um, it's definitely not ideal. Uh, you know, I lost a bit of money on this, but um, we will soldier forward. Next up, a question from Charlie Pope. What is Princess Jasmine up to? I miss her, especially with Saima. No longer with us. Broken heart emoji. Uh, I'm so glad you asked. I actually have this incredible story for Jasmine and for Rex and for Rex going back to Turbo Atoll. Now, I was going to write this as part of Normal Combat 2, but with the looming presence of Alexander, uh, it wasn't the right time. I had to sort of get through Normal Combat 2 and then assess what this return to Turbo Atoll could look like. And now... Uh, I think I got it. I think I know what I have to do. And um, with Turbo Waytoll and the Alexander Trilogy coming to a close, I can sort of spend some time inching towards this. And uh, I can see it all in my mind. 
it's like a movie playing out. I know what the action sequences are. I know what the stakes are. It's going to be a long forgotten character reintroduced to this whole thing. Um, it's going to have a little bit of everything for everybody. Uh, so, with my plate now open, I might start putting pen to paper and kind of jotting this down. But I definitely have a pretty compelling, pretty amazing story to tell there. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Next question from Thomas Bushi. For you, what goes into determining when slash why to kill off a character? Um, many, many different things go into this decision. But I think largely it is about serving the story and the momentum of a story and the arc of all these characters. And a lot of the times, uh, I do not want to kill off characters, right? They're near and dear to me. But if it benefits the story, if it makes the story that much better, if it gives it stakes, if it is the destined thing that needs to happen, uh, then I have to do it. I have to sort of service this greater urge of creativity that comes to me. Uh, every now and then, um, it is also based on real-life events. So it can be, uh, you know, a multitude of different things. But typically, I determine it has to happen if it makes the story better. Next up from Michael Coppola. With diver suits showing up in a few places across the vector, is it safe to assume that some of them were divers who just went through the wrong rift at the wrong time? Have some been turned into servants where they land, or have their suits been studied and replicated slash manipulated by those who found them? Uh, well, this is a good question to segue us into the present day of Knights of the Slice storytelling in that world. Um, if you have not read Normal Combat 2, you really should. The epilogue of Normal Combat 2, and I'll do my best not to give spoilers here, but the, the events of the epilogue at the end of this story um, have repercussions for the vector and our access to it. It essentially shatters all of the all of the highways that lead to the various rift uh, portals and give us access to the vector. So by the actions of Alexander at the end of this story, essentially everybody is cut off from traveling from these different levels to one another. Uh, there are very interesting ramifications to that. A at the start of Normal Combat 2, as we've seen with the introduction of Diver, uh, vector exploration has entered a golden era. This is like the big gold rush. Everybody's building diver suits and venturing into these unknown alternate dimensions, claiming technology, exploring lands, pioneering, colonizing, um, and all of this is happening, uh, you know, as a sort of global phenomenon. You know, they're meeting interdimensional characters. They're interacting with the Trilobite Kingdom. There's uh, deep space exploration happening with Spice Fleet. Like, it is a, uh, a golden era for all of this. And this epilogue essentially severs all of that shut. Now, that means there's going to be divers trapped in other dimensions. Uh, there's going to be earthlings in the Trilobite Kingdom, vice versa. And what will rectify all this, we do not yet know. But 
I think uh, it's been pretty well established. Meddling with the forces that Alexander was meddling with have had some pretty dire consequences in the past. And this is once again, you know, reared its ugly head. Um, Regarding more of the nature of the question here, um, you know, when we're talking about multiple dimensions, the origins of the diver suit might change in different worlds. You know, uh, I like to think of the world of Knights of the Slice as the diver suit is a old technology that's been retrofitted to be able to explore the vector. Now, when you go through a vector portal, you might end up underwater, you might end up in deep space, you really don't know. That's why you need a diving suit that is capable for all those different environments and will sort of keep you safe and keep you sane. That's another aspect of travel. You know, you can really sort of burn out all your synapses and and be left uh, a drooling mess. Um, But, uh, you know, largely, we're going to see a lot of different explorers being stuck in a lot of different places. And I think this lends itself well to brand new storylines for us to get into in 2023. But I would say, for our purposes, I, I largely think of the diver's suits as again, just our technology kind of retrofitted in order to explore the vector. But I I wouldn't be surprised if there is some uh, stolen or retrofitted alien technology that helps achieve that goal. Sounds like exactly the sort of thing those ghouls at the Black Satellite like to do, and they do so well. Next question from Matt Connolly. Who was your favorite adult when you were a kid, aunt, family, friend, local legend that inspired you in your youth? Um... You know, I think that it's probably two answers to this. I would say my aunt, who lived with us for uh, most of my childhood, was very important. Um, Going to ans- uh, speak a little bit about this later on, but when I was kicked out of my childhood home, I went and lived with my aunt, and, you know, that ended up being a very good experience. Um, but I-, I would also say my great-grandmother, um, you know, she really thought I was... <laughs> Uh, Alexander Reborn, Um, she, you know, she spoiled me beyond belief. She was very kind and very nice to me and very cold and very mean to almost everybody else, which I never saw as a child. I just thought she treated everybody like that. Uh, But I spent a ton of time with her. You know, for a woman born in 1913, uh, having that intergenerational relationship and hearing the stories about her growing up you know, in a farmhouse with an outhouse and just the the sheer amount of change she saw from the year, you know, 1913, prior to World War I starting, uh, all the way up to, um, you know, she lived past 9-11, so, you know, the early aughts, um, that is wild to think about. And, and, and how folded in on itself time and progress became, you know, from even just the hundred years, you know, well, she didn't quite make it a hundred years, but just think of 1913. Think of, imagine life back then, uh, you know, electricity and telephones and automobiles. Think of the primitive or non-existent state those things were in compared to today. Uh, it would be, you know, pretty staggering. I do remember, um, Late in her life, she came and visited Florida. 
I was starting college and she took me to a Dell computer store so that I could buy a computer to be able to sort of handle the rigors of the college education I was embarking on. And to think of this woman in her mid-80s in a computer store trying to... (laughs) She didn't know what these things were necessarily, but she knew it was kind of crucial to my education and, um, you know, just kind of left it up to me and the sales clerk to, to figure out. But, you know, I don't think... She probably didn't grasp even a fraction of percent of what went into these machines based on where they were or weren't, you know, the year she was born. It's really quite staggering to think about. So, you know, I'd have to put those two women up there as uh, my favorite adults. Next up is uh, Gavin Rader. I'm trying to remember specifically what was discussed about the action figure of the Millennia Helldiver. Will there be any extras available to patrons? Uh, Yes, as I said earlier in the podcast, I will put those up on the store for patrons, and if there are any left, they will make a public debut. So by the time you hear this, they might already be up there. Moving along and dovetailing nicely into Matt's question from Valverde, what was it like your first year away from home on your own and away from family influences? Um, So I definitely had a non-traditional path in this regard. Like I said, when I was 17, I was asked to leave my house. So went and lived with my aunt uh, in her spare bedroom, started paying rent, which was a a first and something that uh, I've not been able to dodge since then. Um, Then I bounced around uh, living with my mother, moving to Florida. So it took a few years, but I did eventually get my own apartment. I got it with my older sister. Um, After that, I went and lived with my younger sister and we shared an apartment. So, you know, there have been sort of uh, family involved in all of my sort of early, uh, late teens, early 20 living arrangements. So I wouldn't say I was ever free and clear of family uh, in those formative years. But more to the spirit of the question, you know, what was that first year in my own apartment like? You know, it was, it didn't really feel free, if I'm being honest, because I had the weight of paying rent and paying car insurance and paying health insurance and things like that uh, squarely placed upon me. Um, So it was, you know, a lot of ramen noodles. Uh, I had one, I had a VHS player and I only owned one VHS tape. It was Elizabeth the Kate Blanchett movie. So I would just have that on all the time and watch it. I didn't have cable TV or anything. Um, That house was also kind of a flop house for anybody who was moving to Florida. I co-opted a lot of friends to come and stay on the couch and eventually move there. Uh, So it was, you know, it was kind of a pigsty, (laughs) if I'm just being honest. I also worked at a bar, so... I, you know, had a lot of friends that were older, a lot of friends with a lot of substance problems, and there was a lot of partying going on. Um, you know, it was, I, I, I tend not to look at it too glamorously. Uh, I definitely, whatever freedom I, I got from being away from my family was overtaken by the lack of freedom in, you know, 
slave uh, wages, just working for a living. So, um, you know, it was definitely a sort of, it was a trade-off. I think I was much happier having my own apartment that I would have been sort of living with my parents. And I also realized this was 1998, 1999, 2000. Um, 22 years later, that's not really a, a viable option for a lot of people. Um, you know, a lot of younger people. They don't have the option of going out and getting their own apartment. Um, you know, it's just one of these sort of many crises that we face at this time. Uh, Jules, who, who works... Uh, sometimes in the workshop doing labels and things like that. You know, she lives at home and, and so do most of her peers and so do all of her siblings. It's like, uh, you know, that is just a very, very difficult sort of uh, step to be able to make. And, uh, you know, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Well, I confess it is a rather short podcast this week because I got to head out to the workshop. I got to start breaking up uh, the next figure that's going on sale Tuesday. So pay attention to that. It requires a lot of building on my part, unfortunately. Uh, and also, I got to keep rearranging all these boxes, all the new product that's arrived, building SKUs on the store. So uh, you'll forgive me if I cut out a little early. But before I do, I wanted to share a follow-up from a previous podcast. Um, I had, we were talking about, I don't remember what we were talking about, actually. <laughs> but we, but uh, I had the question uh, about The Simpsons and why the Treehouse of Horror. Oh, okay, I remember now. I think it was, I want to say Jason Rushlow who was asking what my favorite Halloween style shows or movies are to get me in the seasonal mood and uh, I said Treehouse of Horrors and then I started pondering why Treehouse of Horrors aired the first week of November in my youth instead of on Halloween or the Sunday before Halloween or or even earlier in October when it would be much more appropriate you know what I mean um, so uh, having this nagging question I've had my entire life I thought, why don't we uh, message friend of the show, Bill Oakley, who uh, was one of the head writers during, um, you know, the glory years of The Simpsons, easily. You know, some of the best episodes ever done by that show were under his watch. Let me send him a note. I know he's a busy guy, but uh, maybe he can shed some light on this. And sure enough, this morning I wake up and there's a reply from Bill Oakley and <laughs> he... He finally has solved this, uh, this conundrum my mind has been in for 30 years. Uh, this Treehouse of Horror episodes used to air the first week of November instead of in October, when it would be more appropriate, because of Major League Baseball. There were baseball games that uh, provided scheduling conflicts and pushed those episodes out to November. Uh, I never in a million years would have guessed that, but it makes total sense. And a uh, big shout out, big thank you to Bill Oakley for finally solving this riddle. And everybody should be following Bill Oakley on all of his channels. I'm actually a member of his Patreon, which is a 
really quite a blast, a lot of fun. So um, go do us a favor, go follow Bill, and uh, he is a he's a good guy as far as I know. Um, if okay, also if Bill Oakley gets canceled one day, I'm going to denounce him and uh, walk back that statement. But I think uh, at this point, you know, he's pretty solidified in in being a uh, a bright beacon of light in the universe. All right, so that wraps us up quite nicely. Next time we talk, you will have already have been beholden to the glory of the Bugwing and what a magical time it will be. Mark uh, and myself have been working for a long time on this project. Uh, we also got really great sculptor, uh, Frank Cawthorn, who uh, did some amazing designs and some beautiful concept art from Goblyprin. Um, it's all finally coming together. Let me go work on that launch, and I'll get the bug wing out to you guys as soon as possible. Thanks for listening. Distazapod out. Just to get out.